Happy new moon creatures. We've just crossed the tilt. The autumn equinox is right behind us. And we are entering the time of year where the nights are longer than the days up here in the Pacific Northwest. The dark season is upon us. I'm walking through an island park right now. Just at sunset, we're catching this right at the end of the day. The shadows are growing long. People are moving through the space. A little end of the day activity. Moving to a place with actual seasons has been a big gear shift for me. Coming from a place of almost eternal summer, relentless summer, <laughs> relentless sunshine, relentless heat, you know, you develop patterns to cope with that ecosystem. But now I live in a place where the seasons turn like clockwork. Spring is spring for three months, summer is summer for three months, and now here the tilt happens and autumn is upon us. Just starting to feel that chill in the air. Everyone's just getting out their sweaters and their big tea mugs and their fuzzy blankets and withdrawing socially. I feel that in myself. I'm tired. And I'm, you know, that's 2022 vibes, <laughs> at least in part. But I'm also starting to recognize it as just a tilting of the seasons. Things change. It gets dark. I don't have as much energy. Every other living thing rises and falls with the sun and the seasons. Why not me? So in my house, in my tribe, we are making ready for the dark season. We're creating space for our energy to be lower, for our reserves to need more active replenishment. We have to do more for all that good neurochemistry, all those good vibes and connections. It doesn't come so easy like it does in the height of summer when the days are long and the sunshine is abundant. It's a turning point right now. And I want to embrace that even here. I want to take a little time and look back at in brief, all the things that we've talked about over the last nine months, ten months, this is the tenth episode, we've been spending a lot of time looking inward in our walks together. And shadow work is an inward journey. Shadow work is work you can only do for yourself, right? No one can do it for you. I can talk to you about my journey. I can talk to you about the things I've experienced. I can talk to you about the experiences I've read from other people. I can talk to you about the neuroscience we think connects everything. But you know, at the end of the day, shadow work is a personal journey. I can't make you do shadow work. I can't make you realize anything. I can't force any of those connections inside of you. I can only talk about the ways that things have come together in me what I've seen, what I've experienced, 
and how these experiences, these new awarenesses that I've cultivated in my life kind of reframe the way I look at my past, the way I look at things that have happened before. And maybe if you're in a place where you're open to it, you can glean a little wisdom from it. Hiya. Maybe it's something that can serve you. But I can't know that front end. So I want to talk about this inner journey. I want to help summarize a little bit of this. But today I really want to start to pivot it outwards though. Because while shadow work is such a totally personal journey, it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect us, or affect other people around you. You know, what a person does, how you treat your inner world ripples outward. Um, if you do shadow work and you weave this into your life, it will change your relationships. It will change your community. It will, it will just change the world around you. If you don't do shadow work, that also affects the world around you too. In the episodes to come, I want to talk a little bit more about what happens, what I think are consequences of us as a society not doing shadow work, not, not giving time and space to these unseen parts of ourselves, of our psyche. The stored cortisol and adrenaline hidden away in our nervous system, like ticking time bombs. The boundaries between the inside and the outside are more porous than many people realize. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. Just take us through a tilt. I hope gently. Okay, so let's kind of look behind us these last nine months of talking about our shadow work and talking about our nervous system. We've been laying out tools, external tools, you know, the crisis box from the very get-go. We need to have things in the outer world that can anchor us when we're doing depth diving, you know, when we're really going into ourselves, when we're making this space within ourselves. It's important to anchor somewhere onto something. Over the course of this, I made my own set of mala beads and the heaviness of them, the way that they clack together, the cool feel of the agate in my hands or the rough texture of the lava stone they wake me back up to my senses so even if I'm in a moment of stress it's created an anchor point for me I hope you found something on this journey something that helps to anchor you bring you to your senses a place that we evacuate from very quickly when we're in heightened states when our traumas activate you and our shadow takes over. We talked about the importance of building a safe and calm place inside of ourselves, you know, to have a space within us where we can meet and interact with parts of ourselves that might be very frightening, parts of ourselves that we certainly don't want to see, but creating and believing that there can be a space within us where I cannot harm my shadow and my shadow cannot harm me that there is a meeting place within us where a kind of new way of relating to each other can begin. You know, and I can't know what that relationship with you and your shadow would look like. I can only know what it's been for me and mine. And it's been transformative and it changes. Nothing is static here. The world of the shadow is an ever-changing place. 
We always have to be adaptive. And so it's good to have tools in our pockets. Uh, physical and metaphorical, you know, like I'll have my mala beads in my bag and I have my breathing techniques uh, that I carry with me. I have things I remember that help me anchor myself and remind my nervous system that I'm safe. It's okay. Nothing has to be hidden from me right now. I'm not in danger. Even though my nervous system, out of hypervigilance, might be perceiving danger, I'm actually safe. I breathe slowly. I allow my heartbeat to slow. I give my body irrefutable signs of my safety. We talked about the parts perspective of the mind brought to us by internal family systems therapy and Dr. Richard Schwartz. How we can look at our minds as not just being like one big static lump, the psyche is not just one thing, uh, but is actually made of a lot of different components. One of those things for those of us who are trauma holders is the idea of an exile. There's some part of your psyche that whoop, just scoops up that traumatizing experience, that thing that we just cannot process. We just can't process yet and it stores it. It stores it in our nervous system. Physically, it locks it away with cortisol and adrenaline. So that way, if we start to access it, what we're met with is a flood of stress hormones that deter us from accessing it. The whole point of an exile is to stop you from accessing it. Your mind will develop parts, which we call managers and firefighters, our protectors. And their job is to either keep you from activating that exiled space in your nervous system, or if it does activate, to just shut it down as quickly as possible. Last month, we talked about our apparently normal part, the complement, the yin to that yang of the exile, you know, and all of their protectors. The flip side of the coin is that part of us that just has to keep living and keep doing things, has to pay the bills and go to work and deal with kids and take the dog for a walk and make dinner is doing all of that without access to resources that are vital to it. It's just, you know, making ends meet. We also laid out the space of the inner child, that part of us that manages our connections to ourself, to other people, and is an expression of the amygdala. It only learns, it only learns through action, you know. <laughs> Anybody's been around a kid, like they can't be told. They have to learn the hard way. That's true for all of us in some parts, in some places. We talked about this system of parts and these are not exhaustive, you know, we're just talking about a few ways that the mind can be partitioned and that it operates in parts, whether or not we carry trauma. But these parts, if we've gone through the integration of the personality that happens around seven to nine, we haven't had any very extensive and inescapable trauma before that age. Um, the personality integrates, but there's always a chorus of parts happening underneath the surface. And that's true for us through childhood, through adolescence. And then when we talked about the keyhole, this idea that there's a certain part in our lives where, you know, all of the really good neurochemistry that we got for free, I call it the trust fund, the neurochemicals trust fund, it kind of runs out. By our mid to late 20s, we are fully done physically growing that last bit of growth happening in the brain, wiring together that prefrontal cortex, 
allowing problem solving and empathy to come online, right? We didn't have those before, which explains a lot about the teenage years and high school and our early 20s. But at a certain point, you're done growing. Your body isn't going through that pain anymore. And so your body doesn't need to numb you to anything anymore. And so the neurochemical trust fund runs out and we are confronted totally with the pain that we carry only able to mitigate it or numb it through the positive habits that we've built up to that point. I don't know about you guys. I did not make it through the keyhole gracefully. <laughs> you know, like I kind of honestly here I am at 41 and sometimes I feel like I magically like like clumsily and magically backflipped through like a gauntlet of razor blades and somehow came out on the other end. Not unscathed, not unscathed, but like I made it, you know. I don't think it's very graceful for many people. Or, okay. <laughs> At least not all my creatures. It's bumpy. It's a hard transition. We're not really prepared for it. And so we come to the other side with just kind of whatever coping mechanisms we've got. Maybe through this entire thing, we don't even have any idea of what trauma is or what the shadow is. I didn't start learning these terms until my late 30s. I had no idea what I was going through. But it's given me a lot of perspective to learn those words now, to be able to like look back sympathetically and understand like, oh man, I really like hit the pavement and skidded through my keyhole or, oh wow, that day that I was so upset with myself and the way I behaved, I can see how that was an exile being activated. And then that firefighter part of me just hit the bottle to drink it and drown it away. You know, like I can look back, I can have some retrospect. And it's contextualized things for me now. I think that's part of getting older, you know? We, we learn things. We start seeing those long patterns. The amygdala learns in that way through experience, you know? The only way it can. And we start understanding things a little bit more deeply. I laid out for you guys how I visit with my shadow. How I've been working to build a relationship based on trust. And it's been a slow journey. It's been a slow journey. And trust has been forming. And as that trust forms, I start having greater access to my own memories, um, new perspectives on the things that happened before. I'm starting to understand more about my life why I made the choices I made, the things that were happening. And at least part of that is really about, I'm understanding more about how I lived with my shadow before I knew my shadow existed. When we talk about, you hear this all the time in pop psychology, you hear people talk about projection, you know, that oh, they were projecting this onto their partner or to their children or to their boss or, you know, like whatever. And there's generally a, a pretty negative connotation with that because it's not very pleasant to be projected upon, um, to have someone project their stuff onto you. You're like, I didn't do any of that. Like, I don't know what you're talking I don't know why you're so mad at me. What is happening? It's confusing for everybody. And it's something I think that happens to everybody. I, 
Maybe. Maybe there's someone out there who is so in touch with their shadow who's grown up, you know, without trauma and able to see maybe fully the mechanisms that work inside of them. But I'm going to tell you, I've never met that person. And I'm certainly not that person. When I couldn't hold my shadow inside of me, when I couldn't pick it up, and not just hold it, not grab it, not grab it and shove it inside of me so other people didn't have to deal with it, but I mean really genuinely hold it, make space for it, hold it with hands that can give it love and understanding and compassion. When I wasn't able to do that, my shadow could not live inside of me. I couldn't hold it within me. And I had to put it somewhere, though, because I could sense it. You can feel it. Even if you can't see the things that the shadow hides, it doesn't mean you don't sense it. There isn't some kind of perception. This is all happening in your nervous system. You absolutely, on some level, know when you're activated. You know when that anxiety kicks up. You know when you've been triggered. Even if you can't articulate it in that moment, you gain a sense that something is not right. If you haven't done a lot of shadow work, like I hadn't done a lot of shadow work. If you haven't done that, you start looking outside of you for where is this troubling feeling coming from? Why, why do I feel so strange? What, what is happening here that makes me not feel good? It makes me feel pain. You know, because we, we talk about the shadow. We talk about the subjective experience of the shadow. And inwardly, in your mind's eye, you might have a very vivid space where you can see and interact and talk to these parts of yourself. At the ground floor, what we're talking about is the activation of your nervous system. There's that old adage, what wires together, fires together, right? So if I, like, think of Pavlov's dogs, if you ever heard of that experiment, that popular, famous experiment, where they rang the bell and then they gave them food. Okay, so the dog started to associate the bell with food. And so it would turn out that later they would ring the bell and not present any food, but the dogs would start drooling because these two stimuli had become wired together. Okay, well, so let's say um, you grew up with somebody who wasn't kind to you. Let's say when you were a kid, the features of this person and their cruel treatment became tandem, like the bell and the food for Pavlov's dogs. They became tied together in your nervous system. Let's say the person was, uh, just to say, let's say the person was a blonde, a blonde of a certain sex. Later in your life, you might find that when you're around people who physically resemble them, you get anxious, you get nervous. You don't even know why. You're like, this person I'm talking to is totally fine. Why do I feel, why am I so awkward all the time? Why am I so weird right now? Or why does this person just piss me off? Like more than I can even express. Or like, why, you know, why do I just always have a negative perspective um, in front of this person? You, you may not even realize it. You may not even realize that you're having a negative, be like, this person just sucks. <laughs> I just hate this person. Like they're the worst. Or flip side, you might be one where that activation internalizes and you're like, this person hates me <laughs> and they hate everything I say and they think I'm an idiot. You know, like it doesn't matter which way you point the dagger. The fact is it's become unsheathed and you're swinging it. That's a co-activation. There are little things. This is what we talk about with triggers. 
you know, it's not the it's not the fault of let's say this new coworker who maybe physically resembles an old abuser. It says nothing about them that you would be experiencing that activation in their presence. It says something about you and your history. Now, of course, we have to try to be responsible for our own behaviors and our own actions, even in a heightened emotional state. And that's where these new moon practices, meditation, taking walks, practicing our breathing, like all of these are tools to help us manage our behaviors, manage the ways that we act in this shared reality together. But that does not immediately numb or nullify all of the big feelings that can happen. When we carry trauma, we may not even be able to see inside of the space of our memory what are the things that would activate us, what are the things that would trigger us. We can't even maybe remember the things that happened. But you walk into a room and you get a feeling and you don't feel comfortable. Something makes you feel unsafe. And it's just because what wires together fires together. Before I had any idea about my shadow, before I could understand that those weird feelings didn't say anything about who I was with or where I was, but in fact said something about me, before I had that awareness, I blamed those feelings on the people, the places, the situations that I found myself in when an activation would happen. They made me feel that way, you know? This person just makes me feel uncomfortable. They just give me a bad vibe. And don't get me wrong, I'm not here to knock intuition. I think intuition has a lot of value. And sometimes people do just give you a bad vibe. But can you tell the difference? Do you know when you're feeling a bad vibe or when you're experiencing a traumatic activation? That's a hard difference to parse. And we have to be able to leave a little bit of space, you know? That's hard, that takes time. That's a skill to build, <laughs> slowly. When we talk about people projecting onto others, that's what we're talking about, is that I'm experiencing, let's say, I'll just kind of keep running down this example. Let's say I start a new job, I have a coworker who shares physical attributes, perhaps mannerisms, with someone who had been an abuser in my past. I may interpret them through a lens created by my experiences with an abuser. And so if they say something that honestly could be completely innocuous, like, oh no, I don't want any cake, thanks. I might hear it's like, no, I don't want any cake. You know, I just might hear tone. My, my perceptions will be distorted. I'm listening and I'm seeing and I'm experiencing through a, a warped lens. I'm not able to get a clear picture of reality because a part of my nervous system is interpreting whatever this person is saying or doing around me through the distorted lens of my trauma, through the shadow, through the unseen parts. If I don't know that's happening, I'm just going to think that they're a terrible person. You know, I'm just going to listen to my gut. I'm just going to say, oh, well, my instinct knows, you know. And I might find myself acting in ways that are honestly very unfair to the person at the other side of this exchange, the person that I'm in this shared reality with. We do this all the time. <laughs> you know, we do this all the time. 
walking around in the world after doing all of this learning for myself for my own journey it has just completely changed the way um, I view the human mind the way I interact with people the way I look at these relationships it also changes for me the way I respond when someone's kind of hot with me for no reason you know like sometimes I know we've all had that experience. You're just in a situation and someone's just hot with you that day. Like just something about you pisses them off. And I used to get so defensive. <laughs> oh, creatures, you may not be shocked to learn. I can be a little hot-headed, you know, especially when I was younger. I see that differently now. You know, when I, when someone's hot with me, I see a person whose nervous system is activated, who has attached something about themselves that they can't accept to me. And they are just trying to play through the narratives of their trauma, of their past experiences in a way that's going to cause them the least amount of harm. I'm learning how to read those moments how to pull myself out of those situations, you know, not having to feel stuck. I don't feel like I have to keep engaging. You know, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I don't. But I found a space where I can try, where I can give a little compassion, a little, a little bit of space. And I, I found that I can do that for other people because I've been able to do it for myself. You know, I can give room to my shadow if I act like an asshole, if I think shitty thoughts, you know, think mean things about perfectly fine people. And I realize it later. I just, you know, I don't give myself as hard of a time. I understand where it's coming from. I had a piece of my shadow that I couldn't hold on to. I projected it outward at people who didn't deserve it, but who just caused a co-activation of parts of my nervous system and the little bell the little bell of stimulus that they rang inside of me happens to be connected to a part of my brain that manages my pain response you know that that is the sense and memory of pain it's not their fault and it's not my fault either it just happens we don't have to compound it with shame it just happens it doesn't mean they're bad it doesn't mean you're bad When we're activated, when we experience big anxiety, our traumas are triggered, you know, if our shadow is activated, the actual pain part of our brain, the part of our brain that senses and understands pain is activated and it is turned on without any corresponding harm to the body. The harm is perceptual. and very real. It is a real activation of the nervous system. The body does not know the difference between the experience of pain and the memory of it, especially when we're talking about traumatized parts of the nervous system. Sometimes it's hard to hold a compassionate perspective. This pandemic's been particularly rough. How wild everything's been getting. I left social media maybe a couple months into the pandemic. 
no regrets. Because it is a place where people project their shadows. They project aspects of themselves that they cannot see. And they point the finger at someone else and rip them a new one. And you know that we've talked about the avoidance mechanisms that we build to manage our shadow, right? This is our, our managers and our firefighters trying to stop the activation of or to deactivate our exile parts. We can externalize those behaviors. We don't just treat ourselves that way. In fact, however you treat yourself is your primary way, is your mode for how you by default treat everyone around you. If on the inside your shadow tries to speak up and you rip it to shit, you shame it into oblivion, you criticize it, you, you know, you do anything, anything, you know, anything, whatever works, right? That's all your protectors are doing. They're just doing whatever works. But if that's how you treat yourself, that is going to be how you treat everyone else. You might slap a smile on your face. You might try really hard to curb it, but all it's going to take is one rough day. All it's going to take is one day where your reserves are a little bit lower than they were before. And those default modes are going to inform how you engage with the world around you the people around you. That's just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with the idea that the way we treat ourselves is how we treat others. That's a, that's a neutral statement about the psyche and about society. You know, as within, so without, as above, so below. Because if we can just change the way that we treat ourselves, you know, build patient and compassionate relationships with the unseen parts of ourselves, we can extend compassion to the people who are maybe acting in ways that we don't totally understand, but we can see an expression of their pain, that they are experiencing pain in that moment, that their nervous system might be dysregulated, that their traumas might be causing a reactive cascade of behavior, that they don't operate right in that moment from a place of patient reason. When I started doing shadow work, I really dug into every dark corner of myself. I thought that for me to heal and to grow and to be better and to be done, with all of this and to put it behind me that I would have to understand everything. And I externalized that behavior. If a person did something that upset me, I had to understand everything about it or I couldn't put it to rest. That anxiety would just spin and spin and spin inside of me. I've been surprised to learn in my actual healing journey how much, like, I'll have a kick up and go, oh, oh, I feel anxious, or oh, gosh, I feel kind of nauseous, or like, oh, I just feel suddenly really, like, tired, I need, to, I need to go lay down. I feel these physical symptoms, these mental and emotional symptoms of the activation of trauma, the kick-up of anxiety. And I don't demand that I explain it all to myself anymore. I don't go digging through my heart, demanding it explain everything because gosh that's exhausting it's asking me to cut myself to pieces to understand myself to try to use my analytical mind to make sense of something that's not analytical it's not 
rational. It's experiential. It's subjective. And so now, like, I'm finding an aptitude or, like, I'm building a skill. I think maybe that's a better term. I'm building a skill slowly, deliberately, that's allowing me to have these flare-ups and to just hold them and go, oh, gosh, that feels... That doesn't feel nice in my body. That doesn't feel good in my heart. My chest is tight. And so maybe I take myself for a walk. I just walk with it. Maybe I do a little yoga, stretch out and open my chest. I start breathing deeply and exhaling slowly, knowing that if I can't do anything else, at least I can try to engage in physical practices that will help me switch over to the portion of my nervous system that controls resting and digesting, the calm, patient place in my body. Because I know as a trauma holder, my system defaults very quickly to switch into fight or flight. And it has a hard time coming out of that state. So I can at least be its homie. I can hold these, I imagine them like little black holes inside of my body. You know, I just hold a little dark place inside of me. And instead of diving into that black hole and getting trapped on the other side of, of its event horizon in these complex geometries that determine its inner structure, this horrifying maze of memory, fragmented senses, I, I, don't, I don't need to do that. I can just hold it and I can walk with it and do everything I can to support my nervous system in the experience of whatever got kicked up. I found that when I don't fight it so much, it isn't as intense. And so I found with other people, when, I, when they have something that happens, I don't have to understand it. I can accept that they're experiencing pain. I can accept that they're having an intense moment. They may not actually even have anything to do with me. I'm not gonna cut them open. I'm gonna try to help them regulate their nervous system. I'm gonna try to give them, I point out the handholds for them to climb their way out of the pit. I know I can't do it for them as much as I want to sometimes. And gosh, oh shit, was I an enabler. <laughs> you know, like, woof. Trying to deal with people, trying to like, you know, being a traumatized person, you just, you find yourself in groups of traumatized misfits. It's just kind of, we cluster together, you know, and we don't have the best relationship skills. <laughs> so things can get kind of intense. Enabling, you know, helping everybody else. It was my ticket to the downward spiral. That's how I went down that slide. I'm not doing that anymore. It's hard to watch the people you care about struggle. It's hard to remember that no one makes anyone feel anything. You don't make anybody feel anything. Something happens. You have thoughts about the thing that happened. Those thoughts cause feelings inside of you. And then you react to those feelings. That's the chain of command. That's the order of operations. There's a little acronym, STORC. Uh, S-T-O-R-C, right? Because whatever, it's an acronym. Uh, S-T-O-R-C, situation, thought. Uh, O-R is organic reactions, your emotions, whatever it may be, and then consequences for C. 
often when I'm feeling a thing, now I ask myself, well, what am I thinking? You know, what's the thought that's coming through my mind? Can I change that? Uh, that concept of the coworker who maybe bears resemblance to a former abuser. You know, seeing them and hearing them say something, and, you know, I might have that uh, perception that their tone is pointed at me or aggressive towards me. I can stop and go, okay, well, so they said a thing to me, and I'm feeling threatened, but what was the thought that happened in between? It's like, oh, maybe there was an assumption that, just an assumption that they don't like me, or an assumption that they're, you know, I, I looked at them and I thought their face looked mean. I'm like, well, maybe that's just their face, you know? Like, just create room for a little bit of other narratives. What are other thoughts I could have about the situation? I started to discover when I considered what other thoughts I could have about the situation. I started having other emotions about this situation too. I didn't always have to take the first thing that came through the pipe, you know? I didn't always have to listen to the most reactive part of my mind. Because that's who speaks up first, you know? (laughs) Every time we're in something, that's who speaks up first. And so when I'm in an engagement now, when I see somebody who is in a rough way, and their energy is hot, right? Their system is activated. I understand they're operating from a very reactive place, but that's not the only place inside of them. They maybe just don't have the tools. Maybe they just don't know. They don't have the handholds. So this has been, you know, I'm talking about just my journey, like in getting to know my shadow, in getting to make this space for myself within myself, I'm finding it easier to make this space outside of myself for others. It changes the way I interact with people around me. It's changed my relationships. And and for being a person who's come through that traumatized pathway of groups of misfits who always implode under some kind of drama to a place where now I have a band of traumatized misfits who are forming secure attachments to each other and growing and healing, like, you know, the proof is kind of in the pudding. I feel like there's something I've learned here. This barrier, this boundary that we perceive between how we treat ourselves and how we engage in the world outside of us is an illusion. Or at least very porous. If you're somewhere that isn't like complete darkness, take a second. Look at your shadow. You turn yourself, pivot yourself to look at your shadow. We cast our shadows. It is a projection of our complex three-dimensional form onto a two-dimensional plane. It's a simplification of what we are. An unilluminated oversimplified part of ourselves. If you find yourself in a fight, if you find yourself in a tough place, and you see yourself surrounded by enemies and the things that scare you and the people that have hurt you, 
understand that in that moment, it's possible. It's possible that you are draping over others the things that you cannot bear to see in yourself. This is what we mean by projection. Now, you know, if you're finding yourself in harm, if you find, you know, what, remove yourself from situations if you're uncertain. There, I'm not advocating for anyone to deny listening to their gut, but letting there be some steps in between the feelings that we feel and then the things that we say and the ways that we act. Just that little gap of space, a little bit of room. Doing shadow work has allowed me to build that little space inside of me. You know, and it started with the meeting place, just a place where I could be face to face with the parts of me I couldn't bear to see. I was able to give my space, my, my pain, a little bit of space. Inside of that gap, oh, so much can unfold. Inside of that gap is nothing but possibilities. It's hard to know when we're projecting, you know? It's hard to tell that that's happening. I wish I had a cure-all. I don't, you know? There's no universal path on this. Each one of us has a completely individual journey to walk. Even if sometimes our experiences along these paths can be relatable to each other, they're always completely unique. I think the most valuable tool I've had on my journey has just been patience. When things are peaked, when I run hot, when things get reactive, I just let myself take a step back and go, whatever this is, I don't have to hurry it. I don't have to rush to a conclusion. I can give myself time. I can think about these things. I can consider how I feel. I can get myself first to a calm state. And then from there, I'll be able to access parts of my brain that will give me a clearer and more rational perspective on what's happening. If we can start doing that with ourselves, we can start doing that with our loved ones. And sometimes I think it works in reverse too. Some of these skills that have really helped me, I started building in my relationships first because these are the people that I love and I don't wanna lose them. And so I learned that sometimes in a fight, it's better to step back and go, this is obviously really important to both of us and I wanna make sure I'm in a good place to have this conversation. I need to take some time. Can we come back to this another day? You know, and having a partner who can meet you on the other side, having family and friends who can be in that space with you is such an incredible gift. Sometimes, in learning to love ourselves, we learn how to love other people. And other times, it's other people loving us that teaches us that we can, in fact, love ourselves. 
the last of the light is leaving. The clouds are navy and kind of bright orange along the edges. The forest is completely dark. Until the next new moon, my blessing to the pain bearers.